Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing? Well, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. that is the general mood of the last two weeks or so is right. we are here, we are present, but that's about, you know, it's about all we can say at this moment. Um, it's too much going on, too much to address. It's kind of you know, emotional overload for lack of a better phrase. And hopefully as we, you know, discuss things today, we can, you know, be able to find a little bit more of an outlet to talk about what what it is that we're feeling and, uh, you know, what else we can learn from this stuff and also how we need to be learning from the scriptures and taking those lessons and moving forward as far as, uh, I mean, not just how to grieve, but also how to, um, I guess, learn from the past so we don't repeat those mistakes, even though the way it's looking right now, we may very well end up doing that. So hopefully we can have something valuable to contribute to the conversation as we seek to learn these lessons. So before we go ahead and begin, I want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Uh, find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in the book of judges this week, the whole book of judges. Once again, uh, only time enough to cover a few of the chapters but we are going to make an effort to uh, cover some of the chapters that are not necessarily covered in the Come Follow Me and hopefully be able to have a conversation about what we can learn from some pretty dominant thing themes of uh, this book. Now, just by way of overview, we don't know who wrote the Book of Judges or when uh, the Book of Judges was written. It was probably after the rise of... Israel's monarchy, given the book's repeated refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. We're going to be covering about 300 years going over what happened between Joshua's conquest and the rise of kingship under Saul and David that we're going to see eventually. Uh, the name of the book also comes from the title given to these uh, charismatic short-term leaders that God appointed who save Israel from oppression and exploitation. As early as Judges 2, we're told that other nations are still remaining in the land after the conquest in order to test Israel. Unfortunately, we're going to see Israel fail this test multiple times as they forget the covenant that they made with their God and as they embrace uh, other gods, uh, the Baals and the Est. Astartes, Astartes, I can't pronounce that. Baal and Astaroth are named specifically. Uh, subsequently, uh, Israel forfeits God's protection, and there's going to be a lot of uh, spiritual decay, and Israel is going to be overpowered and exploited by their enemies, among several other problems that we're going to see in the book of Judges. There's this uh, regular cycle of remembering God and being saved, and then forgetting God and being given over to slavery, to uh, false gods, and to moral decay. So one of the big messages and purposes of the uh, book of Judges seems to be that trouble and disaster will come upon folks that reject God. And uh, specifically, we're going to see 
A lot of idolatry and cycles of religious compromise and partial obedience begun by multiple tribes' failure to drive out the residents of the lands they're supposed to take. We're going to see that in the first couple of chapters. So idolatry is going to be a regular theme. We're also going to, once we get to the parable of the trees, see the theme of a kingship start to begin. And uh, several of the books that we're going to read from here on are going to talk about the... uh, you know, talk about kingship, and we're going to have multiple opportunities to critique things like monarchy. But uh, we'll start that conversation a little bit later, since this is just the uh, beginning of the conversation on kings. Uh, anything else by way of introduction or overview you want to make sure that the people are put on to, Derek? Yeah, let me just say, uh, uh, a lot of people talk about the pride cycle. And okay. we see this a lot in the Book of Mormon, and we see this a lot in the Book of Judges as well. But here's something that people seem to miss out on. Every time people talk about the pride cycle, they almost always talk about it in very binary terms. And by binary, I mean all or nothing, that it, that a society is either good or it's wicked. That there's no gray, there's no in-between, there's no complexity, there's no nuance. Our, our brains love tidy categories. And uh, the, the problem is, what happens when reality doesn't fit those categories? And that's where we get option one and two thinking, which I'm not going to review right now. But option one and two thinking are both sides of the same coin that wants to keep everything in these nice, uh, nice categories. So when you hear the pride cycle, you hear things like, oh, they were righteous, okay, in a very simplistic way. And then they were prosperous, and the prosperity the prosperity led them into wickedness, and the wickedness was like somehow neat and tidy. And then they um, were humbled, and God rescued them, and then they became righteous again. So the problem with that is these societies, these stages, and these phases aren't always all or nothing. There's complexity. There's complexity in individual characters, and you see this throughout the Bible. These characters have complexity, and and you can't really, in often uh, times, separate the good from a character from the bad from that same character. It's the same personality characteristics or experiences that that allow that person to be used as an instrument in God's hands, but also can lead to to problems. So we have to we have to name that, and rather than thinking of oh, a society is all wicked or all evil, because if we look at modern American society, which we're going to get to, uh, it's hard to recognize what's going on if you want to put it into the category of all evil or all good. And so we'll we'll get there. I also wanted to name that the book of Ruth, I'm not going to talk about Ruth today, but it uh, takes place in the same setting as the book of Judges. It's the same time frame. So Judges and Ruth are essentially the only texts we have that feature this particular segment of Israelite history, and so that can give us another window on it. And in fact, in the Jewish Bible, Ruth is categorized later in the canon among the writings, Uh, but Christian Bibles typically move it forward to place it chronologically with the book of Judges, though it really doesn't have anything to do with the book of Judges other than being set at the same uh, time. I also wanted to 
clue people into this commentary set called the Wisdom Commentary, which is an exhaustive scholarly academic commentary, uh, very recent, on the entire Bible from a feminist perspective. And we uh, may not have access to a lot of these resources. In fact, I don't have uh, access to the Wisdom Commentary myself at this time. But And it's not all complete yet, but the book, uh, the volume on Judges is, uh, is out, and so is the one on Ruth, if I believe. And so at some point I should get in touch with those. But anyone who wants to look at a, an in-depth scholarly commentary from a feminist perspective, you have the wisdom commentary. There have been other commentaries, single one-volume commentaries on the whole Bible from a feminist perspective, but I think this is the one that, this will end up being 60 volumes long. And I, um, from what I know, it's really good, and we should uh, we should put people onto that. So that's all I had to say about um, sort of this this pride cycle situation here in the book of Judges. But as you said, we've got the this spiraling out of control where you get each layer, uh, the society sinks deeper and deeper, and God sends judges to try to bail them out, and um, it's complicated because God does the same thing over and over, thinking there's going to be some different result. And we've heard people talk about it that way, but that's what God does. Hmm. And in a sense, that's what God does with us, both as individuals and as a church and as a society. So we will we have to sit with that. So let's get into yeah. the text then. Very good. Very good. So um, I wanted to start... And, you know, I, I do want to kind of do this chronologically, but I also want to do this thematically. I, I've noticed there's a the, the primary thing that sticks out, and I want to make absolutely sure that we talk about today just in light of a theme of the book of Judges, but also what's going on in our country at the moment is this uh, theme of idolatry. Um, in chapter two, we are reminded that ac according to the covenant that Israel made with God that they were not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of Canaan. Instead, they were to destroy their altars and uh, their gods. But in chapter two, they did make a covenant with Canaan. And in so doing, they made covenant with people who are wholeheartedly connected to a worldview that contradicted the God who had delivered Israel, in addition to breaking their own covenant with God. So uh, they're con they're conversing with an angel at this point, and the angel's response to this covenant makes sense when the angel says that they will not drive out these people before the Israelites, instead saying they will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. Their gods will be a trap for you, is what uh, the angel says. And sure enough, a few verses later, we read that they are worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. Uh, and in verse 12, we read that they abandoned God and followed other gods from the surrounding peoples. The errant parts of uh, the Canaanites rubbed off on them, as, as opposed to what was right about the Israelites rubbing off on the Canaanite people. And then uh, we see something similar happen later. Once we get to the story of Samson, which is the, uh, you know, the big story from Judges that we normally talk about. Uh, Samson let his relationship with Delilah take priority over his commitments to God, and it cost him his life. 
And I find it very interesting that you talked about the, this is not so clean, not so cut and dry, not so black and white. Samson was a judge, but Samson was very much for somebody who was called from the womb to deliver uh, the Israelites, a very complicated figure. Like, uh, he definitely did some wicked things, but he also still, like in that Hebrews chapter 11 uh, chapter, like he still gets a mention in the hall of faith, if you will. So it's definitely not so cut and dry. And I just found it very interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, the complexity of the characters in these scriptures, that they can't be painted with a broad brush as either uh, wicked or righteous when so many of them are both at different points or at the same time even. But anyway, uh, that was that was Samson. And then once we get to 17, like I found 17 and 18 particularly interesting. We, we meet Micah in uh, chapter 17. And uh, Micah's mother did this thing where she consecrated the silver to the Lord for her. Like, first of all, Micah stole from his own mother. Micah stole silver from his mother, gave it back when he found out that his mother cursed it. And then Micah's mother is going to consecrate the silver to the Lord for her son's benefit to make an idol. Like, bro, what? Like, how are you going to consecrate silver to the Lord so that somebody can make an idol with it? Like, how are you going to consecrate stuff to the Lord for an idol when the Lord explicitly commanded in the Ten Commandments not to make an idol? Like, how can you believe you're following the same God that told you not to make idols or bow down and worship idols? That kind of double-mindedness is what you'd expect from a people that has surrendered to other gods, but still want to believe that they are worshiping the the one true God. And then when we get to 18, we, uh, you know, we come upon the Danites. They've stolen this idol and set it up in their new land that they also stole and murdered for in this illegitimate shrine whose silver was dedicated because of a theft and its priesthood originated in disloyal opportunism. Yet God's name is still used. And uh, they even inquire of the Lord, the, the Danites do. But they were clearly worshiping a God of their own making because they've broken multiple commandments. They have, mm-hmm. they've stolen, they've lied, they've murdered, uh, they, they've made idols and worshiped idols. They've stolen idol and worshiped idols, and they've taken the name of the Lord in vain, and they've lifted other gods ahead of the God of Israel. That, that's like half the Decalogue right there. Like, yeah. idolatry is a heck of a drug, dude. Like, how, how do you break half the Decalogue? and attempt to give the God who gave it glory. Like, that that's the kind of uh, sickness and lack of self-awareness that idolatry has brought upon the Israelites. And when you, when you see it in the text, you, you kind of understand how it could, you know, come upon people today because we have a very similar thing going on in our own day and age. We have people literally breaking half the Decalogue and then still praying mm. to the God of Israel. Really? Like how do we yeah. how do we get there? And yeah, I'm sorry, Derek. I know you probably got a lot to say about this, so let me just be quiet for the time being and let you kind of take it from here. Well, this reminds me that um, some Lutheran dogmaticians have distinguished between gross idolatry and fine idolatry. And gross idolatry is the literal creation of like I'm going to create this wooden or stone or gold figurine of a of a donkey or whatever, and I'm going to literally bow down to the donkey. Now, this type of gross idolatry we don't see 
so explicitly in our day. What we have is fine idolatry, which is the um, placing one's fear, love, and trust in anything other than God. And you'll see this mm. with fame or money or power, right? All of this can be idols, even though it's not this little stone figurine. It's still right. idolatry. Right. And we see this a lot with um, power, especially the power that guns provide. Guns f- provide a false sense of security and protection. And, uh, well, everything that God's supposed to be doing, people are looking to their guns to do. And, uh, oh boy, I have a lot to say about that. Um, so we've had multiple uh, shootings in the past several weeks, both in Buffalo and in, in Uvalde. Now, for those of you out here that are, that are listening, you might not know this. Many of you know I'm from Texas, but you probably don't know that I'm actually from Uvalde County, 10 miles away from Uvalde. And so in Canepa, we didn't have a grocery store, we didn't have a bank, we didn't have anything. We were just a small village of about 400 people. So the nearest movie theater, the nearest bank, the nearest grocery store, the nearest Walmart, everything was in Uvalde. So I was in Uvalde all the time. I, um, my bank was in Uvalde. Like the, the, the bank that people are sending their, their um, memorial donations to from all around the world is my bank. First State Bank of Uvalde was my bank. And it's just, I, I um, also, uh, um, I worked in the Uvalde schools for a number of years. My mother worked in the Uvalde schools for a number of years as well. Like, I know these schools well. In fact, my career as an educator literally began at Robb Elementary. I mean, it's so uncanny. It's so weird. It's so, like, destabilizing to have, like, why is this in the news? Like, this is my my place. Um, I did most of my work as a substitute teacher at Uvalde High School and Flores Elementary and some at the junior high. But occasionally I was at Robb Elementary and that's actually where I first, as when I was first hired as a sub in Uvalde um, about 20 years ago, uh, my first day was at Robb Elementary. I remember that. I was in a second grade classroom. I didn't do very well. The kids... Um, uh, I didn't obviously know classroom management as well as I do now. And the kids were like, oh, Mr. Knox, can we play with the Legos? And I'm like, sure, there's no problem with that. And then there's Legos all over the floor. It it was a big mess. And um, there's just something about the, the, the being around kids is so life-giving, right? They're um, so innocent of the ways of... Uh, of adults. Um, they don't have to deal with bills and they don't have to deal with income tax and they don't have to deal with all the pressures like they can just be alive except when they can't and i'm just really upset about this like all of these other school shootings like it's sad that we've adjusted to them right we've adjusted to them to the point where another school shooting happened and i'm like oh yep another school shooting and then i realized it was in uvalde and i'm like wow this is even the pope now knows the name of the the county where i grew up uvalde county um and it's it, it it's a mess because there's there's layers to this um and we've spiraled as a civilization I, and in fact, earlier as we were looking at judges, I was looking at judges and thinking, yeah, we're we're not like this. We're not like this. And then I'm like, how could this ever happen? How could they get that bad? <laughs> and we've gotten well, that bad, at least on well, this axis. I'm not saying we're mm-hmm. all as bad as bad can be. 
there's good things about our civilization too, but on this dimension, we in America have have hit rock bottom, I think, um, due to the idolatry of guns, the idolatry of racialized capitalism, the idolatry of the police forces, which are not there to protect people, right? Um, they're, they're, they're there to protect the status quo and to protect the interests of racialized capitalists, right? And then maybe they'll get around to helping people on the ground, but that's not really what they're, they're for. So, um, yeah, what are you, like, this is just so un, unreal to me that, that, that this is, yeah. And I said, you hear these people say this, like, I never would have, I never would have thought this could have happened in Uvalde. Like, I was like, that's just, that doesn't happen in Uvalde, right? That happens mm-hmm. elsewhere. But somehow right. it happened in Uvalde. And um, I just wanted to name a couple of things um, real quick about the, um, and we don't know all the facts yet. But as the facts come out, we will definitely need to hold people accountable, um, hold leadership in this country accountable for people having access to to weapons. Um, uh, then also hold the police accountable, hold everyone accountable. Um, I'm thinking about this uh, quote that Jesus said. He said in John 10, this is the whole good shepherd discourse. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not a shepherd and does not own sheep, sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them. Because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep, he runs away. This is John 10, 11 through 13. I'm thinking about this as a teacher. Like, if there were a school shooter at my school, I literally would give my life for my kids. I would do everything I can to to save the kids like i'm not i'm not trying to save myself i literally would put the kids first and here we see the police in uvalde did not do that um for as as far as it appears uh so far and and this is just a big big mess the teachers at rob elementary gave uh gave their their lives in 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 protection of the kids and I would do the same thing. And in fact, my first day in Rob Elementary, I don't remember every sub, every teacher I subbed for, but this, because it was my first day, I remember it was a Mrs. Garcia and it was a second grade classroom. I never met her. And this was 20 years ago. I don't know if it's the same Mrs. Garcia or not. Um, but but yeah, we will, we'll see, see how this turns out. What are your reactions to what I've said so far or any questions? Um, no. Uh, just that we are that bad. You wondered aloud if we can be that bad before conceding that we are. We we have literally managed to prioritize other gods before our own, just like the Israelites did. I, I've said before on this show that anything that's set as a priority over human life is idolatry, and we see that with white supremacy and our gun fixation, or rather our refusal to look at how we view our guns in a society when children keep dying. It, it is statistically speaking right now more dangerous to be a K-12 through student than a cop. Like, how, 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 how does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Cops aren't there, like, to... Yeah, they're... And you can see this with the whole everything... 
every encounter with cops and and adults of color, right? It's all about the cop protecting themselves. It's never about uh well I shouldn't say never, but but that has been the the pattern that we've learned from the for not not even since Trayvon Martin, but since um the antebellum era, right? It's all been uh, I don't I shouldn't even talk about this. But there's just so much I could say, like growing up in Southwest Texas, knowing the culture of guns, right? There's overall a respect for guns. Like there's an element of gun safety, an element of of reverence and for guns of like, no, this is we got to take this seriously. And and I uh, most gun owners that I know in South Texas use them wisely and responsibly. Um, but we've got a problem. We've got a problem and we're not taking care of it. And it's a big mess. And I could talk about how this happened in a predominantly Mexican-American community, right? Mm. That needs to be named. And how the the police and the Border Patrol in Uvalde County, that's a big mess too, right? The way they frame um, undocumented immigrants, which I would call refugees or asylees, right? Um... Yeah, it's just it's it's a big mess, and there's just so much to talk about. I want to, and then people come out with this whole thoughts and prayers things, and right, we've seen from James too that uh, faith without works is dead, and same thing here, prayers without actions is is worse. It's 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 insulting to God. It is. Yeah. I think it's insulting to God to pray instead of acting. I just want to name something real quick because it's important from Isaiah one. Um, and here's the thing is a lot of people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints talk about, ooh, isn't it great that we have living prophets? But I love the ancient prophets too because they really spoke truth to power. So here's what Isaiah says to the people of Israel who think that they're worshiping God and they think they're doing everything right, whatever. Okay, here's what it says. I'm going to do verses 13 through 16 of Isaiah 1, and this is Alter's translation. I could do even more of this. Um, because basically Isaiah is calling the people of Israel like they're Sodom and Gomorrah in a sense. Here's what, here's what uh, Isaiah says. You shall no longer bring false grain offering. It is incense of abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath call an assembly. I cannot bear crime and convocation. Your new moons and your appointed times I utterly despise. They have become a burden to me. I cannot bear them. And when you spread your palms, I avert my eyes from you. Though you abundantly pray, I do not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash, become pure, remove your evil acts from my eyes. Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Make the oppressed happy. Defend the orphan. Argue the widow's case. Close quote. I read through verse 17. There's more I could say. But look, God literally says, if you don't do the social justice, I don't hear the prayers. Mm. That's literally what it says. I'm not even stretching it at all. Like our hands are full of blood in the United States today. It's on us to seek justice, to mm-hmm. care for the the vulnerable in our society, to care for the children, Right. Like, mm-hmm. if uh, S- Satan must be so happy about this because Satan's looking at us and say, "Look, if they don't even, if if the 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 slaughter of children doesn't move them, then nothing will." 
right? Right. And uh, it's really tragic that we've sunk this far. Um, but did I already just talk about how the Canaanites, at least according to the Bible, sacrificed their children to Molech? Did we talked about no. that. Well, they no. did. So they sacrificed their children to appease Molech. Um, similarly, Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter uh, in, in an attempt to appease the gods in the in the uh, um, in order to bring victory to his people. There's just a big mess of of what are we sacrificing? We're sacrificing our kids in this literally in the service of the idolatry of guns and the idolatry of police power and and the idolatry of the status quo this is this is a big mess i could probably talk about this for hours but, and we shouldn't so um any last points on this that i should should say i was just thinking while uh when you were talking about the isaiah verses i immediately thought of uh, the irony of judges 19 compared to genesis 19 uh, to reiterate, the Israelites uh, are in this state of worshiping other gods, but claiming they still worship the God of Israel. Judges 19 and Genesis 19 are both stories of inhospitality in the form of gang rape. Only in Judges 19, the assailants succeed, and the Israelites, rather than being the victims this time, are the perpetrators now. Uh, we also got a name that the victims are female, which opens up another conversation I want to get to later. But uh, they have become Sodom and Gomorrah in essence, and to make matters worse, they believe themselves to be God's chosen people, or at the very least were God's chosen people at one point, and then just shed those laws. We literally watched a people liberated by God and taught God's laws about how to worship them and treat other people, and have witnessed and have experienced so much of God's goodness and miracles that we watched them transform into a people that can discard those laws and still claim to follow God. To me, that sounds like too much of American Christians today. I, I think about that moral majority group that started back in the 70s, who literally called social justice a Trojan horse for secular ideologies and an attack on the sufficiency of scripture. It, it's, it's a clear effort to shirk our responsibilities to to each other and feel great about it because it's what God wants. But like you said, social justice, it's central to the biblical witness. It, it's not possible to understand the teachings of Jesus without a clear understanding of the centrality of social justice to our scriptures. And I genuinely believe that to be a big reason why so much of American Christianity doesn't work for a lot of people or why they want nothing to do with us. It, it, it calls efforts to see other people as God would see them, Trojan horses, secular attempts at godliness, godless period, uh, and an attack on scripture and on God, a threat to the gospel and discipleship, like all, all kinds of things. And of course, those most engaged in the work of justice and reconciliation, they, they want nothing to do with such gods, gods that justify or even encourage inhospitality, gods that aren't trying to sol solve the gun problem or the race problem or you know, similar ones. Yeah, and I just want to say two other things. Is um, First, I want to name, and we'll probably get to this, but Jephthah, the hero Jephthah, who's named also in, in Hebrews 11 as one of these heroes of faith, ended up 
apparently sacrificing his daughter. Now, there's some scholars who, who dispute whether it was a, an actual sacrifice or whether she was just um, got that got transferred into a life of a celibate order type thing. But anyway, uh, so even Jephthah decided to, to play into treating the God of Israel as a Canaanite God, one who could be appeased by animal uh, by human sacrifice and um i also want to name do you know uh kurt bestor's uh choral piece the prayer of the children oh yeah yeah so he's a latter-day saint composer Mm -hmm. and he wrote this um this prayer it's it's more about children in wartime but i think in a sense we're in a wartime as well right Uh, And one of the, here's some of the lines from this piece. Can you hear the voice of the children softly pleading for silence in a shattered world? Angry guns preach a gospel full of hate, blood of the innocent on their hands. Crying, Jesus, help me to feel the sun again upon my face. For when darkness clears, I know you're near, bringing peace again. Anyway, so everyone should check out Kurt Bestor's prayer of the children and listen to that this week all right um so do we want to say any more about i mean we're almost at the 40 minute mark but do we want to say anything else about idolatry it seems to be uh, nope that's it for now we'll we'll uh we should move on i can cover my points pretty quickly I think for the rest of the time. So I want to hear what you had to say. Okay. Um, I actually wanted to pivot real quick to a conversation on the women of this text, since they tend to be neglected and uh, there, there are several of them in the book of judges. I, and all, all of them have stories worth talking about and telling, but I do want to start with uh, the heroes of the store of uh, this book, Deborah and uh, Jael. And uh, the unnamed woman who killed Abimelech, all of these women of whom were instrumental in ending godless men. But anyway, starting with Deborah, she was the prophetess from uh, chapter four through whom God called Barak to lead an army against uh, Sisera, a Canaanite general. Um, Barak hesitates, though. And he won't go, or at least he won't go without Deborah, he says. And Deborah agrees to the request, but she also tells him that a woman would be the one to kill Sisera and the glory would go to her instead, presumably because of Barak's faint-hearted response to the leadership call. And you think, oh, Deborah might be the one to do it, but that's when we actually end up uh, meeting Jael a little bit uh, later in the story. But at this point, it feels like a good time to bring up something that I see happening a lot in the church and something we've also seen happen already in the text. Many women have had to ha- have had to act because the men who should have been leading the way either acted improperly or didn't act at all. We, we saw this with Zipporah picking up Moses' slack, and we see this a bunch today. Zipporah's actions ended up saving the instrument of the liberation of Israel. And we see a bunch of women today picking up the slack of our leaders. I've said before that almost, that rather most of our listeners are women. An overwhelming majority of them are women. Most of the active members of the church are women. And most of the people engaged in this necessary work that we are trying to do are women. So like, 
we 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 got a lot of uh women out here doing doing the work both in the text and in our modern day context but uh let me tell you how this story ends real quick Sisera ends up panicking when Barak marches on him and uh Sisera runs to an ally's tent named Heber in a panic and Heber's wife is there and his wife happened to be the woman Jael she had aligned herself with the god of Israel but played a, a good host to Sisera and while he slept she straight up hammers a tent stake into his temple. So Jael knew that Sisera and the king he served were wicked men and enemies to God's people. And she also recognized that a wife is not supposed to follow her husband into wicked paths. So when opportunity presented itself to fight against God's enemies, she took that action. Again, not the first time we saw a wife step up where the, hus where the husband failed. And it's not going to be the last either in the text. Not for this lesson, not for this lesson or um, not for a lesson on prioritizing a relationship over obedience to God, though I acknowledge that such a message has also been misappropriated in our modern day context with regard to mixed faith households or in uh, families with uh, queer children. Yeah, I so. wanted to say a couple of things about that real quick. Number one is okay. part of it is her positionality. Perhaps if she had been a man, she would not have been able to have access to Sisera, Sisera's tent, right? She just walked in there and and uh, was not suspected. Um, and I think a similar thing is, is true with Ehud in Judges 3.15, who was, because he was left-handed, he was able to sneak in a weapon into the enemy's um, King Eglon. Oh, that's a grotesque story, but... I don't have yeah. time to talk about it, but my point is, and this is similar to like Rahab. I made this point, must have been last week, how she, her positionality as a marginalized figure, as a woman, as, as on the edges of society, as a sex worker, allowed her to have access or insight or wisdom or connections or something that would allow her to, to advance farther than those who were centered in society. Um, and here's another thing that we can learn about Jael. Uh, when she struck the tent peg through Sisera's temple in the in the middle of the tent, she was the first person in the Bible to do temple work. <laughs> oh, Derek. <laughs> I'm not even mad at that one. I'm not even mad at that one. <laughs> well She's the played. first person in the Bible to do the temple work because the temple had not been. We had the tabernacle at this time, but we will not get the temple. Right. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, Dang. I didn't even see it coming, but it was so well executed. Okay. Dang. I worked on, uh, yeah, I, I work on these and when I should be actually working on the other stuff. <laughs> Well, it's harder for the jokes than it is for the actual commentary. Like, you yeah. just vomit the commentary. You got to think about these yeah. jokes. That was a good one. That was a good one. Uh, like, uh, originality, execution, both 10 for 10, my guy. Yeah. Well, I think I heard this from somewhere. Um, I can't remember now, but I heard something that that reminded me of it. So, I, but well, I can't I've never heard it. And I don't think yeah. any of our listeners have ever heard it. So, I'm, yeah. I'm giving you those points. Well, you can give anyway. me the points to recognize the 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 genius, but yes. everyone should study very closely Judges four and five. We've got the same thing. Uh -huh. um, one version is in prose, and then chapter five is a song, and it's Deborah. We need to name that that Deborah sang this. Uh, uh, the Hebrew, 
uh, verb here is feminine in gender. So it says, and Deborah sang, and Barak, son of Abinoam, with her on that day. Um, so she takes the lead. She sings. Remember, she, like you said, she's a woman prophet, and she's a judge. That cannot be underestimated. People think, oh, that's just some type of exception or like some like ab- abnormality. Mm-hmm. No. God, male and female are alike unto God, right? right. They're not alike unto me in terms of dating, but they're alike. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they're alike unto God. So we should not be surprised with women prophets and women apostles and women judges and women leaders um and women who can can speak scripture right and women who can make decisions and women who can lead god's people um uh, in the scriptures but then so the song everyone sh- we don't have time to cover it but the song is really really good and it's different there's differences in detail you can see how if we had only one or the other of this we would say oh that's how it actually happened but because mm-hmm. there's some some slight differences between the two, we realize, okay, Scripture is a um, giving us a perspective, right? And it may not be God's perspective on this. It may not be God's uh, dictated uh, view, but it is the perspective of our ancestors on these things, our spiritual ancestors. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Um, so that's, so, that's uh, all I'm going to say about her. Okay. Um, well, then I'm going to move from Jael and I'm going to go to kind of the other side of the spectrum here. Uh, we briefly mentioned uh, Jephthah's daughter, but I really want to make sure we mention uh, the text of terror in Judges 19, which we briefly talked about. But this is where the unnamed Levite's concubine is, uh, you know, gang raped, highlighting the general misogyny of the ancient world. In addition to the ironic uh, transformation of the Israelites from victims of oppression to to oppressors themselves. There is uh, no real justice or redemption at the end of this story. It, it's just tragic and violent. And the reader, even with a proper understanding of the social context, including the status of concubines in the ancient world and the general attitudes toward women back then, it, it's we're just we're just left to sit with it. Um, the the only thing I feel to say strongly, other than naming the text, is that this story isn't covered in our "Come Follow Me" lesson, and this is one of many things, many things that points to a tendency as a church and as a society in general to to silence both sexually explicit text and conversation on sexual violence in general. Uh, Our inability to talk about sex and sexual violence in particular has not really benefited us, to put it politely. And, And when the Levite in this story finally reports what happened, he's not wholly forthcoming about the details of it, something else that mirrors something that happens in our present society. He's not honest about what happened, including his role in the concubine's rape and subsequent death. And 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 to make matters worse, because of dishonesty, like among other things, the punishment for this rape ends up being a civil war that exterminates pretty much all the men of Benjamin, uh, the murder of a whole town, except for 400 virgins, and then the rape of those women. And then the kidnap and rape of uh, women at Shiloh. Um, Alice Keefe uh, wrote about this event. She says, uh, 
there is an element of dark absurdity in both the horror of the woman's of the women's of the woman's faith at the hands of the Levite and the horror of a war among the tribes, which is to no purpose except mass death and more rape. Close quote. Uh, I would further add uh, dishonesty about the circumstances of the woman's death led to more death and more rape. Uh, Perhaps in talking about it now, I can hope that this reading warns us against the lies we tell ourselves about sexual violence against women, about sex in general, and about the consequences of not adequately and honestly addressing this violence. But, uh, you know, at at risk of, of rambling and speaking at a turn, I think that's all I have at the moment for a text like this that is just simply a lot. It, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be named. But uh, I think that's all right. I it's for, for now. The author wants us to be disturbed. This is part and it of is the, disturbing. the author's case that, that everyone, how does the, let me just get the actual, the final verse of the book of Judges. Um, I want to get the exact wording. It says, Oh, here it is. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That is one of the main themes of the book of Judges, that without uh, a particular kind of leadership, without everyone being on the same page, we will all spiral into um, the worst of the worst. And I think this this uh, this last narrative in, in Judges is part of the worst of the worst. Um, I don't have much to say about this. I think for the sake of time and for the sake of expertise, uh, the queer Bible commentary on judges covers this material so much better than what I would say on this. So I'm just going to defer to that. Everyone should check out the queer Bible commentary. I did want to name, I don't want to talk about too much, but the annunciation to Samuel's mother in Judges 13 is important. Read that. Samson's mother? Yeah, Samson's mother. Okay. In Judges 13. So, um... The word of the Lord comes to a woman, and we shouldn't be surprised by that, but with patriarchy, a lot of people would be surprised that um, that this happens. And uh, and so here we have, like, uh, uh, we have that. I'm not going to say too much more about that for the sake of time, but definitely check out that and how the, the word of the Lord comes to a woman and how she processes it and how she relays it to her husband and how her husband believes her and how this all works out. I did want to say two things really quickly about Gideon. Um, in Judges chapter 6, Gideon is called uh, to be a judge, and the Lord says, okay, here you're going to go. You're going to um, go out and battle and, and prevail for me. And, and like, Gideon's, how am I going to know that? How am I, how am I going to know that I can defeat the Midianites? And how am I going to know that that uh, you're going to be with me? And then so uh, Gideon literally asks for a sign. Says, "Okay, it's this whole thing with the the fleece." And so one day, um, the Gideon says, "Well, if what you're saying to me is true." then let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. And then that happens. And then the next day, Will says, okay, well, let me just double check. 
let the the let the fleece be dry and let the ground be wet with dew and then that happens and so be, and so the lord was able to work the lord accommodated uh gideon's demand or gideon's request and um was able to communicate was able to confirm i think gideon had the right spirit of saying yeah let me just double check this with god let me just make sure and let me hold god accountable to god's character and then the second thing I wanted to say about Gideon was how he actually defeated the Midianites was not through, it's not exactly a military victory. What happens is he gets these uh, trumpets and whittles down uh, from thousands of men, I think it's 32,000 men, whittles it down to 300 and gives them pitchers of uh, clay with torches inside and then trumpets. And then they surround the enemy the camp of midian at, at night and then in the middle of the night they blow the trumpets they they crack the pitchers and they have these flaming uh torches and then this disturbs the whole camp of midian and they get confused and they ended up um all killing each other right or running away right and so in this in a sense it was non-violent right um or in a sense gideon's act Gideon and his people had a had a had a more nonviolent approach, right? That they instead of attacking them with weapons, were able to just position themselves in a way uh, that what Jesus said in Matthew twenty six fifty two came true. Jesus said, "Put your sword back in its place, for all who take hold of the sword will die by the sword." Notice that they had a torch in one hand and the trumpet in the other. They didn't have a hand for a sword. And it was the Midianites who fell upon each other with their swords. Okay, well, uh, two final things in the time that remains. Uh, while we're talking about Gideon, there is a lesson on accountability here. While Gideon rejected the request of his people to be uh, be king, and that's a good thing, he did get a bit out of hand within a few verses. For example, he, he took gold from folks to make an ephod, which is a uh, ephod, I think I'm saying that right, which is a uh, priestly piece of clothing only meant to be used by a Levitical priest in the tabernacle. Obviously, Gideon was not either of those things. Um, And with this new gear, Gideon assumed illegitimate religious authority that he wasn't assigned, and uh, he led the people astray from God's program. And even though he refused the kingship, he named one of his sons Abimelech, a name that literally means my father is king. Uh, Nobody was checking Gideon. And this is one of the many critiques of kingship that we're going to see in the text over the next several weeks, which uh, brings me to the parable of the trees in Judges 9, which I don't think we'll have uh, adequate time to cover today. But Jewish theologian Martin Buber says it is the uh, strongest anti-monarchic fiction in world literature, the basic critique of which is that anybody who wants to be king is useless. And perhaps when we really get into it, that kings, generally speaking, are useless institutions, often destructive, and will abuse their power inevitably. Uh, There'll be you know, there'll be an opportunity to talk about this again um, when the Book of Mormon moves from kings to judges, and there will also be opportunity to talk about that this year in real time when we start talking about, you know, the different kings over the next several weeks, including uh, David and Solomon, who we're going to get to uh, soon, and Samuel. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I had one thing I wanted to say about 
chapter 11 and Jephthah, and it could be why he felt like he had something to prove, right? And why he felt, okay. obviously he had his own agency, but he was situated in a context where he had something to prove and he wanted to win the victory over the Ammonites, which is why he, his vow was, well, God, if you... Um, let me win over the Ammonites, then I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out my door when I get home from the battle. And the first thing that came out the door was not a a sheep or something. It was a it was his daughter, his right. his only child. Anyway, mm-hmm. earlier he, it, it's um. What's interesting is Jephthah's mother was a sex worker, and his half brothers, who must have had another mother said to him and they kicked him out of the family they said you shall not inherit in our father's house for you are the son of another woman and Jephthah fled and dwelt somewhere else and then it turns out that after his uh, after the Ammonites came and were doing battle with Israel uh, the elders of of Gilead went back to Jephthah from this t- this place where he had been exiled to and said, hey, come be our captain that we may do battle with the Ammonites. This is the Robert Alter translation. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? And why do you come to me now when you are in distress? And I think that's a very important point. Um that uh, look at what what happens when you exclude people, right? This is this is a big mess. It sets up the whole thing. But very frequently, queer people are put in this position, and I imagine every other minority uh, group is put in this position as well, whether it's gender or ethnicity or uh, disability or anything of that nature. Like we're excluded until they need us. Like there's been times in my ward where <laughs> where they needed particularly me because of something only I could do. I'm like, well, now's a good time. Now you like me, right? Or, and, and it's mm-hmm. the same thing in the church. Um, people are excluded until they realize, uh-oh, we actually needed that. <laughs> we needed that. It's kind of like um, when I get uh, some some product like some some prepackaged food like like I uh you know you get this frozen something and I I open it up and I throw away the box and I put it in the oven and I realized oh no I now need <laughs> the instructions on that box that I threw away <laughs> in order to finish the thing right in order right. to know how long it was or what was the temperature or what's the next step right so we who are queer are like that thrown away box t- lid thing. Like, yeah, you threw me away, but now you need me, right? So, right. and I think the the clearest example of that, of course, is Christ, who was crucified, the ultimate throwing away. And then it turns out we needed him the whole time. And that's mm-hmm. probably all I have to say here. Okay. But James, I, I will never throw away you like that box top because I need you. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. That's very kind of you. Anyway, if there's nothing else, I want to go ahead and uh, begin to wrap things up. But before we do, we want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. 
And the second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS or on Facebook by searching for us. Yes. Also want to give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, as well as uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for helping out with the social media stuff. And of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines also include the uh, Faithful Feminist episodes uh, from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me study guides. You can find the link to the outlines in the uh, show notes, as well as the drop-down menu on our website. And uh, the same thing goes for the transcripts, show notes, and drop-down menu on the website. Is there anything else we need to put the people on to, Derek? Nope, but Pride Month is coming up, so be yes, proud. <laughs> Yes, looking forward to that. If nothing else, then thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Until we meet again next week. Bye-bye.